Hey, welcome back to the Oxford Comet, brought to you from the New York offices of Oxford University Press. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michelle. The fall theater season is upon us, and in honor, we have a jam-packed, dramatic episode ahead of us. It includes going behind the scenes on the set of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, which is now on Broadway, and we have a contest going with the Toy Box Theater Company. This week, they are opening their production of Voitsec here in New York City. For a chance to win free tickets, email us at blog at oup.com, subject line, toy box. For complete instructions and terms, visit the Oxford Comet page at blog.oup.com. Michelle, you want to tell us a little bit about this show? Certainly. The Toy Box Theater Company is celebrating their ninth season, their tenth production being Georg Buchner's Voitsek, which, as you'll soon learn, is one of the most mysterious plays ever written. I've had the chance to hang out with the company for the past few months, and now I have the honor of sharing some exclusive behind-the-scenes material with you. And scene. My name is Jonathan Barsness. I'm the director of Wojtek. Wojtek was written in the 1830s by a guy named Georg Buchner, and he was working on this play when he died. He was only 23 years old. What he left behind with this play was was just a stack of handwritten paper. In a, uh, in a drawer that they found after he died. None of the scenes were numbered. There were some different drafts of scenes, so it wasn't really clear what his intention was, which way he wanted to go with it. But there are all these questions about what he, even just the German words that he was writing, what they are, because his handwriting was so poor. They were like scratchy notes. And um, I was so intrigued by this fragment of a script, but like anybody who ever produces it, um, you kind of have to do something to to fill in some holes or to, to to make it a complete thing. So we set it in a small town in Minnesota in the middle of winter. Our opening scene begins with Wojtek and his friend in the pre-dawn on a frozen lake walking out to start ice fishing. What are you doing? I can't see anything. Yeah? I got it. My fingers are freezing. Wojtek is about a man who lost his job, and so it's watching him sort of try to try to keep his world together, try to keep his sanity together as everything sort of crumbles apart around him. As the play progresses, Wojtek becomes more and more convinced that his girlfriend is having an affair. Marie. Yes, it's me. I saw you watching me. And as we're sitting in the audience, we're not sure if it's really happening or if he's just kind of paranoid because he doesn't feel like a man or if this, or if he really is having this affair. What Buchner wrote about, I think, that's so enticing is, is this idea of fate versus uh, free will. Like, how much are we actually in control of our own destiny and how much are we just, uh, you know, God's puppets? There's this scene where there's this uh, a trained horse at the carnival and um, it seems like that was always a really tricky situation for previous directors and adapters to deal with puppets or some even used Wojtek in like a horse head to, you know, to more clearly uh, draw that parallel. And in Buchner's other plays, he refers to humans as automatons. And then it hit me that you could also compare humans to a robot if you're going to compare it to an animal. It's sort of the same idea where robots don't have free will so we have this dancer who's doing these inhuman sort of, I wouldn't call them robotic movements, but they sort of imply a robotic sort of nature. So she looks like a human. She can smile on cue. 
She, uh, she can move somewhat like a human, but it, it's not quite right. Ladies and gentlemen, I present Adam. Like a human, he can speak and carry on a conversation. Like a human. Hi, I'm David Michael Holmes. I'm playing Wojtek, that robot. In the scene, she's revealed by a, a carny. Uh, I want a closer look at her, so I go up and I, I notice that she has skin, and I want to see what that robot skin feels like. So I touch her on the arm, and that brings her to life for a second, and then, which is very exciting and startling. And then it turns into just this phenomenal movement and phenomenal um, interaction, and it's building to this perfect moment when all of a sudden I get called off by my girlfriend and the robot just shuts down and that's that. So I'm Elizabeth Motley, I'm the choreographer. Jonathan had talked to me about it, it being a scene where there will be this character that is a robot that will have very specific robotic movements. You know, one of the things that we, we definitely decided was that she would have sort of a downward gaze the whole time that she'd be really disconnected from, um, from everything going around on around her. And um, one of the ideas that we sort of worked with in developing the movement was that the robot might be a way of talking about Wojtek's character. That, that Wojtek feels not human, that he doesn't see the world the way a real, a real human sees the world. He sees things a little differently. My name is Sarah Hankins and I'm playing Margaret as well as a Carney. And I also voiced a couple of the voiceovers in this show, which are very funny. <laughs> I was the grandmother, that was me. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a poor young child who didn't have a father or a mother. The moon was always smiling at him and keeping him company when he got scared at night. But when he got to the moon, he found that it was just a piece of rotten wood. So he journeyed farther, all the way to the sun which turned out to be a shriveled, dried-up sunflower. After all this searching, he made up his mind to go back to the earth. But once he got back, he found that the earth was just an upside-down, frozen clay pot. And it seemed like winter would never stop. Michelle, that was really depressing. It's called Catharsis, Lauren. And I forgot to mention, the company band, Colonna Sonora, who is actually on stage for the entire production, they wrote and produced the music you just heard. If you're interested in seeing the show, guys, remember to email us to enter the ticket raffle. And even if you don't win, you can still get discount $15 tickets by mentioning this podcast at the door. Michelle, did you know that someone in this very office was in a production of Voight Second College? Our resident theater books editor, Norm Hershey? Exactly. I sat down with him and, well, this is what I asked. <laughs> 
so theater, um, musical theater in particular, as an academic discipline is, is actually pretty new. Um, and of course, we publish a lot of books about the topic. So where did that, you know, how did that rise? How did that come to be? That's, that's a really great question. It's only been in the last 15 or so years that musical theater scholars have been able to identify themselves as such. For uh, most of musicology's history, that area of music production has been kind of anathema to speak about in academic settings. Uh, it was seen as too commercial or not really serious music in the same way that, say, Shostakovich or Beethoven or what have you um, was. Um, and it's through the work of some really pioneering scholars revealing that they like this music and seeing patterns in it. I think of Jeffrey Block, uh, for example, whose book Enchanted Evenings we published on our backlist. So what's the best play that you've ever seen? I'll say it was a production of Hamlet that I saw in Akron, Ohio a great number of years ago. Uh, the theater, it was put on on the lawn of Stan Hewitt Hall, which is this reconstructed medieval mansion outside of the city that, you know, the indu great industrialists of the early 20th century put together painstakingly with bricks that they had brought over for, for, from England. And it was, uh, it, the evening was stormy and there was this electricity in the air that added to the performance in a way that made it really memorable for me. And we didn't mention this before, but Norm is responsible for our brand new Broadway Legacy series. Jazz hands! Which <laughs> debuted this fall with the book South Pacific by James Lovensheimer. And he recently spoke here at the National Arts Club, uh, played the piano for a bit, and revealed some secrets about the infamous duo Rogers and Hammerstein. So I know for your book, you spent a lot of time digging around in the uncatalogued archives of the Library of Congress. What was the coolest thing that you found? Well, one of the things, one of the really amazing things I found was a half sheet of music manuscript paper that Richard Rogers had written the melody of This Nearly Was Mine on because they were, they needed a new song for the second act really fast. And Richard Rogers had asked for a title and Hammerstein had said, this nearly was mine. And Rogers went off and wrote the music, which was not usually the way they worked. Usually Hammerstein wrote the words first and then Rogers would write the music. But this time, Rogers went off and wrote the music in pencil, or he wrote it on this piece of paper in pencil. And then every time in the song, he wanted those words, this nearly was mine, to appear uh, with a certain musical phrase. He wrote them under that part of the melody and then he gave that piece of paper to Hammerstein to write the words for the song. So this, I found this half piece of paper that's been sitting in a box for years and years, decades, and it was the genesis of one of their great songs. I know in the book you share that uh, Hammerstein was pretty politically involved, and I think obviously that comes through in South Pacific. Hammerstein was fresh off of having written a lot of stuff for the Writers' War Board that was very critical of racial intolerance in the United States. I'm sorry, can you explain what the War Board was? Yeah, the Writers' War Board was a group that was founded um, just after Pearl Harbor, and its initial um, purpose was to write propaganda that would be published in newspapers and other places um, to get people to buy war bonds, and they became increasingly active in writing about racial intolerance and they compared um, people in the United States who were racially intolerant to being uh, the same as Goebbels and, and Goering and Hitler. And, and they were very outspoken about how racial intolerance was something that was taught and not, um, not something that was born in you. How did his views contribute to his writing? He wanted to make his point, but he also wanted to write a show that would not turn off audiences. They wanted to write a hit. So they did this real 
cautious tightrope walk between writing a show about racial intolerance and and that was socially critical at the same time trying to write a hit Broadway musical and it was a very difficult thing to do in 1949 to find that middle ground and they still made some people uncomfortable how so well like this song you've got to be carefully taught which is a very direct statement about how racial intolerance is learned it's taught not it, it's not born in you and people wanted them to cut it people out of town were saying you've got to cut that song it's too polemical it's too topical and they said that song is why we're doing the show so we're not going to cut it James kind of sounds like Steve Carell. Yes, he does. You know, some people say that musical theater is just fluff, but it's not. Just as James was saying, it can be very hard-hitting and at many times political. Just like Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. Which brings us to our next segment. Long story short, uh, Bloody Bloody was in workshop for a long time, and when it finally returned to New York, it started as a three-week limited engagement at the public theater, but then was extended four different times and now is on Broadway. I was lucky enough to get the chance to visit the theater last week, the night before they opened, and I spoke with musical director and cast member Justin Levine. I am so jealous. As you should be. All right, let's hear it. Hi, I'm Justin Levine. I'm the musical director and uh, conductor of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. And uh, we're sitting uh, in the orchestra section right now, uh, just about an hour before we're going to start vocal warm-ups and a fight call. What's the fight call? The fight call is we run all of the uh, violence in the show beforehand. It's sort of just a body warm-up. Um, so let's talk about the show itself. Can you give people who have no idea what Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson is about a brief synopsis? So it's just sort of telling the story of Andrew Jackson and his rise to the presidency through this sort of emo punk rock genre. And the relationship between Andrew Jackson and his wife Rachel is a big part of the show. And I just have to ask about this big sex scene they have. I guess it's more of a metaphorical sex scene. Andrew is cutting Rachel. They are bathing each other in blood. And they are singing while this is all happening. I'm wondering if you can just talk about what is going on in this scene. Because it's kind of hard to forget. Sure. Uh, Yeah. uh, Illness as Metaphor uh, is a song that basically... There are a few things going on there. So Andrew Jackson and Rachel Jackson historically uh, were, were... bleeders, they were blood letters. It was considered uh, a practice for, for health purposes, that people thought that they could, you know, bleed out illnesses. When uh, Rachel Jackson uh, died, uh, the story goes that Andrew Jackson kept her uh, closed off from people for a few days and was bleeding her, desperately trying to bring her back to life. And so we're sort of taking a spin on it and sort of comparing it to the idea of cutting and emo music and just the idea of being an emotional teenager that is, you know, just full of emotions and and cuts themselves. So we're sort of, it's sort of a joke. And can you talk a little bit more about what emo punk rock is? I think I mentioned that to my boss and he made me explain what it was and I don't think I did a very good job. (laughs) Well, emo, you know, comes from, you know, emotional. Uh, You know, the cast always, you know, jokes about is that my demonstration for the 
attitude of it is sort of messing with your vowels and your consonants. And it's sort of this, uh, you know, like, I'm pissed off kind of attitude. And it's sort of funny because it is billed often as an emo rock musical. But um, if anyone's sort of a true emo aficionado, they're going to come to this and be disappointed because that's not really what we're doing. What we're doing is we're sort of responding to what emo is. You know, everyone has, has the eyeliner on and... Everyone has this sort of attitude uh, as they're performing the show and as they're singing these songs. But really, it's just, for me personally, it's about just making the songs rock, you know, no matter what label you want to you wanna put on it. So you've been in previews for the past few weeks. It's yeah. the day before opening night. What's going through your mind? Are you ready to go? I would say everyone on stage has done this show at least a uh, hundred times, if not more. So... I feel like we're, you know, we're in the pocket with it. So it's just about doing it again. I'm just wondering how you do that. How do you get the confidence to perform in front of so many people every night? And are you ever worried about screwing up? Or have you done it so many times that that doesn't even come into your mind? Yes. I mean, we have done it so many times at this point that it, it doesn't, the nerves aren't there the way that they were earlier on in this process. But as far as screwing up, that stuff happens all the time. And, you know, this is a show that's built in a way that so much happens and it changes gears at so many points that it's it's kind of hard to pick up on that stuff, you know? We, we have so many ways of sort of knowing the landscape of the show that we can improvise. What, what sounds are we hearing right now? We're hearing they're doing a lighting check right now, so look, that smart light over there is... It's just running its its course. And uh, speaking of the space, can you describe the decor that's going on right now, particularly yeah. the animal hanging from the ceiling? Absolutely. Yeah, we've got a lot of uh, taxidermy in the space. We've got um, we have a horse hanging uh, in the middle of the orchestra. We've got I'm looking around. We have uh, an alligator over here. Uh, Danielle Worley, the uh, set designer, has done an incredible job. It almost feels like a like a lodge. You know, you've got a lot of antlers around, but she's also incorporated a lot of uh, art references. Like there's a Francis Bacon reference over there, and we have sort of these Rauschenberg combines hidden all over the place. And Justin Townsend, the light, uh, lighting designer, also has a lot of lights going on. Uh, in fact, the... Uh, the underside of the mezzanine is completely covered in Christmas lights. It's and that's not very typical, is it? No. Uh, in fact, there was there was a lot of work to get this uh, space cleared for all of this extra decoration. Um, partly because we actually had to get engineers to come in and get these particular. See how there's sort of a, a false. There's sort of a canopy. Um, so during the show, you're not really looking at the ceiling. You're looking at this canopy of lights and chandeliers. I think we have something like 50 chandeliers in the space. Um, so it was definitely a, a very involved process. Um, do you have a favorite memory from working on the show? I'll tell you a favorite memory I have uh, from this time around, um, doing, it, doing it on Broadway, was actually uh, a couple of nights ago. Uh, we had to set up for the White House scene and one of the wheels on the desk came off and so it just fell over before the lights even came up. So the lights came up and Ben Walker, who plays Andrew Jackson, 
was just sitting on top of this toppled over desk and it was a great moment he actually has a, a background he's, he's a classically trained actor uh, but he's also a stand-up comedian and so he's really great at vamping and you know sort of going with the flow uh, and so that was really exciting to sort of deal with that and at one point uh, the actor playing Van Buren Lucas Nierverbrugge ran off stage and got uh, from our prop master a paint can to prop up the the desk and it was just a really fun moment for the audience because that's what that, that's why we go to theater you know because we want to we know that there's a danger to it and that there is a chance that it's you know it's never going to be the same it's not like the movies you know what might people be most surprised to learn about the cast of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson? I have to say it's definitely one of the funniest groups of people I've ever worked with. We're constantly trying to sort of make each other laugh and outdo the other one, but it's it's in a very positive way. And we have a very sort of intimate uh, vocal warm-up that I like to do with everybody, and it sort of just gives everyone an opportunity to really uh, sort of zero in and, and focus and, and get on the same page. Can, can you describe the warm-up? Sure. Uh, well, you know, we just do sort of some standard scale stuff, but then I like to do uh, the chorus of Waterfalls by TLC. Sometimes we'll do the uh, last sort of uh, refrain of Hey Jude, you know, the na-na-na section. However, the one thing that we always do is we always sing a little piece of a song from the show uh, at the end just to sort of tie it up. I'm sorry, why Waterfalls? Uh, waterfalls because, well, first of all, it's actually just a really fun song to do as a warm-up. And uh, usually I like to let people during those moments of the warm-up uh, harmonize and just be free. That's it for us. Remember, email blog at oup.com, subject line toy box, to enter to win free tickets to Voitsec. You can also go to another showing and mention the Oxford comment to get discount tickets. And if you don't win the tickets, you still have a chance to win a copy of the Oxford World Classic of Buchner's Theatrical Works. Until next time, keep up with us on Twitter, OUP Blog USA, and make sure to check out blog.oup.com for further information on everything we've discussed. As always, our thanks to the Ben Daniels Band, and anything else we need to say? Why don't you just shoot me in the head? Cause you know I'd be better off dead If there's really no place in America For a celebrity of a first Why don't you just shoot me in the head? Cause you know I'd be better off dead If there's really no place in America For a celebrity of a first Right See what that robot skin feels like